Are you ready to take lead in your life? Well, today's the day. Join us on Leadership to Wealth with your host, Neil D'Souza. All right. Hello. I am joined by Henry Priesman. Uh, Henry, welcome to the podcast. Neil, thanks for having me. Good to be with you today. Uh, you doing well in, uh, in our current circumstances? I'm trying to ride it out and uh, not get uh, too down or, too, uh, or eat too much. That's the other problem. So I'm yeah. uh, trying, to, trying to do what I can to uh, stay healthy and, and uh, away, away from that virus. Nice, nice. Um, okay, so here's something I, I do with, um, with my guests. I like to do a, a rapid fire questions just to get us warmed up. And sure. uh, obviously, they're all uh, centered around you. You choose an answer or yes or no. And, and here we go. You ready? Ready. All right. I make friends easily. Uh, no. I have a vivid imagination. No. I worry about things. Yes. I love large parties. Yes, I do. Fancy socks or fancy shoes? Fancy shoes. Solve complex problems or sweep the deck at a cottage? Uh, solve complex problems. Favorite sport? Hockey. Like a good Canadian boy. <laughs> or, or as you've taken it on. Good, good looks or lots of money? Lots of money. A place in the world you'd like to visit? A place in the world I'd like to visit. Um, I've always wanted to go to uh, South America, do a tour of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, something like that. that yeah. For some reason, I've always wanted to do that. Nice, nice, yes. Um, some of the other, uh, the great destinations that we've, that I've heard so far, uh, Australia, um, mm -hmm. Puerto Vallarta, um, you know, and uh, so I, I'm sure I've not been down to South America. I would love to go at some point. Have you been, have you been down there at all? I've never been, uh, that's a continent I've never been to. Um, read a lot about it and um, one day, yeah, one day I'll get there. <laughs> okay, so not too soon because uh, we we need your services. So yeah, <laughs> obviously, obviously, Henry, uh, you know, as I introduce you, you're uh, you're a real estate lawyer and um, also a uh, a teacher as well. Are there any other things that I've missed in there? Um, no, those are my two uh, two current professions. Yeah. I, I've practiced real estate law since 1994. So 26 years now and, and counting. And I've taught um, some courses at Seneca College for the last well, approximately 10 years. Yeah. Um, that's kind of an adjunct part-time professor uh, teaching in their uh, teaching a law course and uh, an ethics course, uh, primarily to technical students. But um, at the beginning, I, I did some teaching in the law clerk uh, faculty as well. Okay. Um, and uh, have you always been, uh, has your practice always been located in uh, Toronto, Ontario? Yeah, I started uh, in, uh, I mean, my practice is currently located across the hall from where I initially started. So, oh, okay. you know, same building since, since the beginning. 
I did when I started uh, after law school. I worked for a firm. I was downtown, and that's where I articled and started uh, practicing as a lawyer. And then when uh, a friend of mine, also named Neil, uh, and I uh, decided to Good go guy. on our own. Good guy. And another brand guy named Neil. <laughs> um, we opened an office and uh, we uh, we started practicing in Scarborough. Oh wow! Um, so, I mean, how'd you how'd you get into law in the first place? Well, I, you know, I, I, I tell a story. How'd you get into real estate law? Yeah. So, I, as far as law, when I started, when I went to university, I was in the BCom program. I was going to do something in finance. I'm an accountant, maybe financial field. Um, and then I, I hung out with these guys at U of T where I went to undergrad who wanted to be lawyers and they were all studying for the LSAT and they wanted to be lawyers. And, yeah. and they said, no, come on, take the test. And I said, nah, I don't want to, like, I'm not interested. And they kept, come on, do it, do it. Like, we're all going to take it. You take it too. So I finally gave in and I took it and I got in and they did. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when I did well, and I I was um, kind of uh, at the point where I, I was pretty sure I'd be accepted somewhere. Yeah, I, I had a hard thought, a hard think to myself as to whether I was going to to go to law school or not. And I thought to myself, well, I need I need a career, I need a job, um, I need to make a living somehow. So why not try this? And if I don't like it, I can always switch to something else. And it's always a good degree to have even if you're not working in the field right having a law degree will open a few doors and um you know that's how i decided to get into the racket um and as far as real estate law i liked it i initially started doing litigation when i um when i started it was the the recession of the early 90s you know the real estate bust and, and all that and the firm i started working for uh, they did all the power sales the litigation for banks, collections, uh, all, all kinds of other sophisticated litigation too. But I found that I liked the transactional nature of what the real estate lawyers did. Mm -hmm. You know, I liked the, the deal, doing the deal, completing the deal. I found litigation to be interminable, you know, it lasted for years and years. Yeah. And then maybe there was a trial and then somebody appealed and it never ended. Right. And that didn't appeal to me. I like, you know, the fact that you got a deal done you move on to the next one, and I like the transactional nature of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. Actually, I've I found in life, for me in general, I've always enjoyed uh, any, anything, any job where you can actually start something and complete it and be able to evaluate it as opposed to uh, professions that, um, jobs that you just do repetitively and and carry on with, um, even when I used to work in human resources and I had an opportunity to work uh, in payroll way back. And I thought, nope, you do the same thing every week, week after, and they got paid really well, but hmm. I thought, I, no, I couldn't do it. I needed to, uh, uh, I need the transactional nature as well. That, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I can't explain exactly why I like that, but yeah. I, I always have. and. It really gravitated toward that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was interesting what you're just talking about with regards to um, initially handling defaults and, and things like that. What are can can you share any of the things that you saw 
at that time um, or that you found yourself learning uh, at that time? Because obviously it would have been early in your career um, in going through all of these types of defaults. And Yeah, I mean, aside from the, the purely technical and legal nature of things, which... Um, you know, you learn because that's that's the nature of your job, which I don't think your audience would be interested in. Um, you learned a lot about, um, I think, well, you learned a little bit about human nature and how sometimes people don't do the, the rational thing. They don't do the logical thing. Uh, a lot of people, when they can't pay their mortgage and the bank goes power sale, you know, forecloses on them because of non-payment, um, they wait till the very last second. It's almost like as if they're, um, they're stunned and they're unable to, to do anything. Yeah. Uh, the logical thing to do, of course, would be to sell the property yourself to recoup as much of the equity as you can and not wait for the bank to run up fees and interest and so on. Yeah. Um, but I found very few people actually were able to motivate themselves or to, to reason things through that way uh, to do that where of course they'd be um, in a much better situation if, if they did. They might be able to get some money out or they wouldn't have to go bankrupt or they could do things on their own terms. Um, I found a lot of people waited to the last second until the sheriff was at the door knocking before they even attempted to do anything. I think you probably have the same experience in your line of work, uh, right? Well, I've definitely, um, I've definitely seen this too. And I'm curious um, when, when you say that, do you have any idea why people do that? You know, it almost seems like a, a kind of psychological paralysis uh, where they, they can't accept or they can't decide that, you know, this is it. We can't pay. We can't keep this house. We've got to do something else. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. It's an interesting psychological phenomenon. When, yeah. I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you why people right. do this. Right. Um, but I can tell you that it's a very common occurrence. So I saw that, which struck me as odd. Right. Um, I saw people who um, would throw their loved ones under the bus, you know, the, the son or daughter who would uh, buy a business or start a business and uh, get mom or dad or mom and dad to mortgage their house yeah. so that the bank will lend them the money and then they'd stop paying and then, they yeah. bail on mom and dad and leave them to their own devices. I thought that was yeah. uh, quite, uh, uh, quite a terrible thing to do to, to parents, especially who uh, were prepared to help you out and you know, risk everything that they've accumulated in their professional lives and their working lives for that child. So I saw all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and most of them, you know, not positive of human nature. Yeah. Um, but uh, these are the things that you've got to kind of, or that you learn, I guess, when you go into the working world, uh, to, um, uh, and, and you learn how the world, what the world's like instead of what uh, you think or you want it to be like. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, dark times can bring out, uh, the dark nature in, in people, but, um, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, so, the other thing, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I didn't realize, I was pretty young, you know, just out of school, but I didn't realize how much debt people were prepared to take on 
uh, often without anything to show for it. Yeah. You know, just discretionary spending, vacations, cars. You're talking about what you saw in the 90s. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, this is not just a 90s phenomenon. I think it happens all the time when money's easy. Yeah. Uh, People will spend it uh, to have a good time and then they don't really know how to pay it back. Yeah. Or have no plan B in case something goes wrong. Yeah. Right. So I saw that too. And that's one of the things that surprised me the most is how much people were prepared to borrow without a concrete plan to repay it. Right. Right. <laughs> well, speaking as, as a kid who once uh, got a credit card uh, fairly young, didn't know, didn't understand it, got into a bunch of debt really quickly. Um, you know, it, it definitely, uh, in the best of, I remember in the best of intentions, you think, okay, when I get my next paycheck, I'll pay that off. But then within that time, and you do that a, a few times, pay it off, pay it off. And then, okay, I'll catch up on it next time. I'll catch up on it next time. And before you know it, it's snowballed. And, uh, and that credit card is maxed out. Right. And that's, at least that was only a credit card, uh, for, you know, a few thousand dollars. But, um, at that time now, of course, you know, people are, uh, picking up all sorts of debt and whether it be cars or, much higher lines of credits and credit cards and, and the like, right? Yeah, yeah. Using it in the same way. I, I think as, as time has gone on, it's become a lot more, a lot easier to get into debt. Yeah. There's all kinds of products available, a line of credit and uh, credit cards and uh, all kinds of payday loans. Some of these things weren't around back then um, that people can access to get further and further into debt. Uh, student loans are a big deal now where, you know, back in the nineties, that really wasn't a big issue. Yeah. So yeah, people will, uh, people borrow and have no idea how they're going to repay it. So here's an interesting one. Something that I've thought about at times is as we, as we kind of move as a society further away from, Oh, sorry. Sorry. Neil. Right. Got an earthquake. Yeah. Going on. Yeah, as, yeah. As we, uh, move further and further away from uh, actual physical currency. And, you know, as we move further away from uh, actually having currency in our hand that we, that we pass over and we're, we're more and more into this, everything is tapping, you know, tap to the card. Do you think there's a correlation, just obviously not your legal opinion, but personal opinion. Do you think there is a correlation between uh, like a disconnect? Why not have yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's becoming a lot easier to spend money. Yeah. Uh, you just tap your card. Uh, you, you know, you put in the card chip. Some you know, you Apple Pay on your phone. Yeah. The the method of payment, the e-transfer, it's become a lot easier to spend money. Yeah, you know, back when you had to take bills out of your pocket and count them and hand them over. Yeah. Uh, the pocket you, was empty. Yeah. You, I think you really kind of had a realization I'm spending real money Yeah, kind of brought home the fact that yes, this is money. I'm spending money. Should I be doing this? Is this a worthwhile purchase? Whereas now, um, you know, the, the numbers don't even hit you until you get your statement at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden people have, you know, thousands of dollars credit card debt and that's it. They can't pay it back. They're in the minimal payment, uh, cycle. 
and it's down the drain from there on forward. Um, sometimes I do refinances for people where they take out equity in their home yeah. to pay off debts and the amount of credit card debt I see that needs to be paid is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't ask the clients um, what it is that they bought, but it, it seems to me that a lot of people don't have a lot to show for it other than some uh, long forgotten vacations and restaurant meals uh, long since eaten. That, that's interesting. Uh, the accounting is always done after the fact, right? When the bill comes, then you, then you tend to do the accounting for it as opposed to, uh, when you had the money in your pocket and had to pull it out, that accounting right. happens immediately. Now, back then, um, it was, uh, if you were buying a house, down payment was still 20 or 25%. Uh, the non-CMHC down payment was 25%. Yeah. Um, you could get CMHC insurance back then. Uh, the minimum was 10%. Yeah. So you had to pony up them. I mean, the prices were a lot lower back then, but people made less money. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit more challenging to buy yeah. a house because you needed more of a down payment. Well, I, re- I remember in the eighties, you still had to have 25% down. I actually, I'm not sure when CMHC started doing a uh, high ratio, um, <laughs> when when they started coming in but uh, i remember that uh, 25% down of course i also remember uh some house prices being you know 30 30 to 50,000 dollars for for some places still so uh, yeah i i mean like back in the late 70s when my parents bought a, a house in in north york and you know rates were really high like they were yeah. high double digit rates yeah and then the um it was common for the seller if they wanted to sell their house to take back a mortgage. Right. So you, you put down your 25, 30%, the seller would take back the mortgage for the rest mm. and you pay them off over time. Well, that that's good. Can you explain a, a take back mortgage? Sure. It's, it's, it's when the, the seller of the property uh, kind of takes back a note, takes back a loan for part of the purchase price. So you don't pay them the full amount. Yeah. They don't get all the cash in their pocket. You pay them a certain percentage and the rest you owe them, right? It's almost like buying a car from a car company. They'll give you the car, yeah. but you, you have to pay for it over time to the car manufacturer, the car dealer, the financing company. Um, you know, that's more common with big companies. It's not very often that an individual who sells a house was going to take back that mortgage or take back that note. But it was happening a lot simply because people couldn't qualify for mortgages and couldn't get those... Uh, um, couldn't pay those rates. So if you had, if you wanted to sell your house, that's you had to do it that way. So now, would that uh, would that take back mortgage? Would that have been in first or second position? First, it was a first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They took back the the sellers took would take back a seventy five percent or seventy percent first mortgage. Wow, interesting. Because that was the only way they could sell the property. Yeah, yeah. Different times for sure. Mm. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's bring it forward now. Um, just just with regards to regular residential um, buyers and sellers, what are some of the, the the biggest hiccups, mistakes that you see happening in transactions? 
Um, well, they, you know, they vary from time to time. Sometimes one becomes more common than another. Um, but I'll give you kind of a, a smattering of what I've seen over the last couple of years where purchasers, especially purchasers, because mm-hmm. you know, the seller uh, can, can make fewer mistakes because they own the property and they know all about it. Um, a few years ago when house prices were going through the roof and there were bidding wars in every property, it became common practice for buyers not to require an inspection. Right. right? right. They Way bought before. it as is. They would not yeah. even insert a condition to have a property inspected. They would buy it as is because they knew that no seller would accept an offer that was conditional when right. other it people were. to a point where you were waiving all conditions and people were even putting above asking, above asking yeah. just to try to win, win the bid. Win the bidding war. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the buyers were lucky and the house was in good condition. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the buyers weren't so lucky and the house was not in good condition. And they discovered only after the fact, after they bought it, paid for it, that there were a lot of problems with uh, electrical, structural, the roof, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, um, the furnace was on its last legs or the air conditioning needed to be replaced, all kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they often had no money to rectify them. Right. But the law is caveat emptor, resale housing, buyer beware. Yeah. If there's yeah. no conditions or there's no fraud on the part of the seller, you buy it, it's yours. Right. Um, so that's one thing I saw. Yeah. Another thing that I, I see more commonly now is people buying a property and for whatever reason, not being able to qualify for a mortgage. Okay. Don't forget, uh, when you go and you pre-qualify for a mortgage, all those pre-qualifications are conditional. That's right. The bank says, yes, we'll lend you the money, but you know you have to prove your income, you have to prove down payment, you have to have a certain credit score, you have to have a job or a job letter. All those things have to come later. Mm-hmm. And if you are not aware of that, um, and you don't have it, it doesn't matter that you have a pre-qualification, you're not going to get that money. The bank isn't going to lend you that money or the appraisal doesn't come in for the value that you paid for it. The bank's appraiser thinks the property's worth less than what the buyers agreed to pay. So all, for all those reasons, you can't either get a mortgage yeah. or you can't get as much of a mortgage as you need so you don't have the money to close. Yeah. Which means you are in default. Obviously, being uh, in the industry, I've seen some interesting things. People buying trucks um, right before the closing, and then, uh, and then they no longer qualify. Yeah, <laughs> their debt debt servicing ratios go get thrown off, um, or people thinking that they can hide uh, various loans or all these types of purchases. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, see- you're right. The, the car lease right before the closing is a classic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or or borrowing money um from a family member and thinking that won't show up i mean there's all sorts of different things that uh, that happens of course at one point in time a lot of these things were were perfectly fine uh and weren't even yeah considered. yeah and the other the another one that happens although more uh rarely is the job switch yes you know yes i bought a house well, now I'm going to switch jobs for a higher paying one. All of a sudden, you, you're not employed at the same place for five years. Yes. You're a new employee somewhere else, and the yes. banks don't like that. So. Yeah. yeah. That, 
that that's true and um obviously it's created it's created issues that way but i want to come back to something that you you mentioned earlier about um fraud with the with the sellers specifically um what type of if if someone's uh, waiving all of the conditions, if a buyer puts in an offer and waives all the conditions, is there any way for the seller to actually be involved in any fraud? I mean, well, sellers uh, fraud of that sort usually happens when the seller either isn't the owner; they're pretending to be the owner, and they're selling a house uh, that doesn't belong to them. Mm-hmm. Or the seller is an owner, but there's another owner or owners that don't know the property is being sold. Mm-hmm. And the seller is, of course, or the, the fraudster is trying to pocket all the money uh, from that sale and run away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we gotta, you got to ask about that because, y- you know, we hear about such things, but does it really happen? Yeah, it happens. Not as much as it used to, but it still happens relatively frequently. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, somebody rents a house, okay? Yeah. The, the owner of the house may be living in another country, another part of the country, may not be around the property very often. The tenant, you know, uh, gives the real, realtor who leases the property on behalf of the owner a whole bunch of post-dated checks. That realtor forwards them to their client, and that person cashes those checks wherever they live. Mm-hmm. the tenant is in possession of the property, right? right? Yeah. If you don't know who that tenant is or who the owner is, it's difficult for you to know that they're not the owner. If they're pretending to be the owner mm-hmm. and they have some ID that they've come across or that they've created that has the name of the owner, it's sometimes fairly easy for them to impersonate the owner sell the property, pocket the money, and make a break for it. Wow. What, so what measures are there that are in place to stop that type of fraud? Well, you know, lawyers and realtors are now um, required to ask for ID, government-issued ID, like a driver's license or a passport. Um, the money is from the sale of the property is only to be made payable to the registered owner. So it can't go to a third party. So that makes it more difficult to perpetrate a fraud because it's got to go through a bank account in the name of the owner. Right. Um, we're taught to look for signs of fraud, indications of fraud. Uh, does that person have ownership documents to give to their lawyer? Do they have a deed? Do they have a survey? Do they have a property tax bill? Where's their insurance policy, right? If you don't have them, that might, tend to indicate that you're not the owner because the owners have those documents. Right. Right. Raise a number of red flags. Right. So when you say, when someone says, well, I've, maybe they have lost them or maybe they're absent minded and they're put them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But it, it causes you to say to yourself, well, maybe we should dig a little bit more and find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a buyer's point of view, the, the most important thing they can do is get title insurance. as part of their purchase. And one of the risks title insurance protects a buyer against is if they bought a property that was fraudulently sold to them. Right. Uh, and they'll, you know, they'll reimburse you in full uh, for your entire purchase price. They'll pay off the bank that lent you the money, everything. 
Yeah. If you're the innocent victim of a fraud. Yeah. Now, um, you know, what happens? It, you find out that that home was not yours or not the, uh, the sellers to sell. Does it, would it go back to the original owner or what, what transpires in that? Yes. Yeah, so so up, until, up until about maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't clear right. who uh, would, you know, have the final ownership of the property. Uh, but there was a case in the Court of Appeal where the Ontario Court of Appeal finally decided that, yes, it would go back to the real owner, the one who was uh, the innocent party that was defrauded. Who never actually sold it. Who never actually sold it. And what people couldn't get their heads around was that for many years the law was, well, we're not sure. Is it the innocent buyer or the innocent owner that got defrauded that should keep the property? As you can imagine, um, it was quite... Uh, quite hard for these people who were defrauded to believe that I didn't sell my house. Somebody fraudulently sold it. What do you mean I can't get it back? Yeah. Yeah. But of course, as I said, that, that case law has been kind of put to bed. So yeah. we know now. And, and the price as whatever the price may, might've been that you might end up receiving, but it's still, uh, may not be enough. Most, it, it could be a family property. And yeah, listen, uh, there was a there was a case where there was a property owner who owned a farm who lived in Europe. Like he owned this property and I don't I don't remember what, what use somebody was making of it. But the, the person, the owner, the real owner lived in Europe. He inherited it from mom and dad, but he lived in Europe. And somebody sold it out from under him, impersonated him, sold it to a developer because it was a farm out near Oakville somewhere. And by the time the real owner came home, found out that he'd been defrauded, the developer had already built a subdivision on it. So it had gone through a number of owners, from him to the developer, people who bought homes from the developer, and sometimes they even resold those homes to a, a new buyer. Wow. And so it got through several owners by the time this guy figured out that he'd been defrauded. Um, wow. So we've had cases like that. Just out of curiosity, do you know the outcome of, of that case? Because you can't give it back to him at that point. No. Um, I, it was a very complex case. And I think what happened was that uh, the title insurance companies that insured all the owners at the time right. had to settle with this real owner and and pay them. of course you couldn't get the property back there were already houses there right yeah yeah so um yeah so he, he got uh, he got a, a settlement for, for the money wow that's great well don't don't go to uh don't go to europe and leave your farm behind exactly that's that's what we <laughs> take away from that um okay so now now let's get into you know what i was really hoping we would be able to talk about more is um the, is get into the investment side, right? Obviously, this is the Leadership to Wealth uh, podcast, and we want to talk about uh, how do people you utilize real estate to build their wealth, and what are some of the different ways that that you've seen people utilizing, whether it be different strategies and things like that, um, to be able to invest in real estate. I mean, there are a lot, real estate is a very popular, obviously, investment. 
and especially in the in the last decade or so, real estate prices and yeah. the as GTA, they say, it's not making any more. Yes, uh, they're not making it anymore. And so, real estate has been a very popular investment. There are a number of techniques um, that people use to invest in real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the more common ones that people I think already know about is you buy a property and you rent it out. So the tenant pays you rent, and that rent defrays your cost, your property taxes, mortgage insurance, other things you have to pay. And uh, you, hopefully you make a, a profit between what you collect in rent and what you pay out. Mm-hmm. And over time, hopefully the property appreciates, so you build equity that way. You pay down your mortgage, price goes up, you build equity, and you have a little bit of income. So that's one very common, very popular technique that's used. A second one that's um, uh, widely known is the flip. Mm-hmm. You, know, you buy a rundown property, uh, you fix it up, you sell it. You know, there's a million of those shows on TV. Flip this house, flip that house, flip your house, flip my house. Yeah. All right. They're all over the TV. And I think uh, people have seen those. Maybe they know other people who've done it uh, for many years. A lot of um, a lot of people are involved in doing those kind of flips. They can be. They can range from a cosmetic flip to something structural, where you almost take the house down to the studs and build it, uh, build it back up. So um, that's uh, a, a second technique that people use. Uh, a third strategy is the um, uh, investing in pre-construction, mm-hmm. where you buy a house or a condo in the Toronto area. Recently, it's been condos. You buy it off a plan from a developer and you know that it's not going to be ready for four or five years. And you hope that in that four or five year period, the price goes up. Mm -hmm. So you can either sell it or you can refinance and get your money out that way or rent it out. But you've made money while it's being built because of the ambient appreciation of the market. Mm -hmm. So that's a third strategy. Uh, And a fourth is kind of a little bit different. Uh, one that I'm most particularly interested in, and that's investing, lending money on the security of mortgages. Right. These are called private mortgages, yeah. uh, where you know people who have savings lend money to others on the security of real estate, uh, and they get paid uh, interest for the privilege of borrowing their money, mm-hmm. and they're repaid when the maturity of the loan comes up. And if the borrower doesn't repay, just like the bank, the lender, you know, sells the property, forecloses, sells under power of sale to recoup their money. Mm-hmm. The real estate, the house, the building, the land is the collateral, the security for that loan. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the more common ones. They're more esoteric ones, but you mm-hmm. know, those are the four most common ones that I see. Right? Yeah. The buy, rent, fix, flip, the pre-construction, and uh, and then private lending or private private mortgage. lending. Yeah. yeah. Um, so can you speak to, uh, some of the legal concerns in each of those strategies? Well, um, if you're buying a house or a condominium to rent out, um, and the property has already been built, you see it, you know, you inspect it, you do all the right things before you buy it. Um, your main risk, legal risk is being a landlord in this property. Being a landlord in Ontario is not easy mm-hmm. uh, because the laws are written to generally for the benefit of the tenant. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're restricted as to how much you can raise the rent in a given year. You know, the government of Ontario tells you how much you can raise the rent. Mm-hmm. And it's generally a very low percentage. 
Uh, it's very difficult to get tenants out even when they haven't paid or damaged your property. Uh, you can't just kick them out. You've got to go through the landlord-tenant tribunal. You've got to get an order. You've got to get the police to enforce the eviction order. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it takes uh, quite a bit of time. And if your tenant is a wily and you know, experienced, mm-hmm. uh, what I call the professional tenant, they know how to work the system to stay there for free for as long as possible. So that's, that's I think, a significant risk there. Right. right? Um, as far as the fix and flip, um, there are insurance considerations. Uh, if you're buying a house, no one's living there, you're flipping it, uh, you're renovating it, um, you got to make sure you get the right insurance because it, uh, just a standard homeowner policy isn't going to cut it. If you have a fire or an electrical problem or a flood and your house is under construction, your insurance company is likely not to pay off because that's not what those policies are for. So you have to get a special policy for construction. Um, you've got the potential for liens. You know, if you are using a contractor and that contractor has a subcontractor who you may not have even known, yeah. you've never uh, made a deal with them, but they come and do work on the property and your contractor doesn't pay them, even though you pay the contractor, that sub can put a lien on the property and you got to make sure to hold back enough money from the contractor to pay the subcontractor. Mm. So you got you got to just don't assume that you, since you've paid your contractor that he's paid all his yeah. contractors. So you got to worry about that too. That sounds uh, like good advice, even for um, the regular homeowner. Um, yeah, you'd be you'd be surprised how many people. Well, maybe you wouldn't be uh, have. Uh, Six-figure renovations done on a handshake or on a one-page, you know, piece of paper. Yeah. And whether it's not clear what the completion date's supposed to be, uh, who's going to be working on your property, what the scope of the work is, what materials are going to be used. So it's it's and you know, uh, contractors are unlicensed, most of them. Yeah. A lot of them aren't scrupulous to take your money and run, or to take your deposit and use it to buy material for another job. Lots of horror stories there. Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as the um, uh, the buy the pre-construction purchase, yeah, um, you are signing a contract to buy a condo or a house that has been prepared by the builder's lawyers. Yes. And as you might expect, there's not much in there that favors the buyer, but a lot of things in there that favor the builder. So delays if they can't build on time, um, the ability to change the property uh, in a non-material way if they need to, um, the extra costs that they hide and sprinkle through the contract that they don't tell you about, all kinds of things. And if you are a buyer who intends to sell the contract before the property is built at a profit, there are clauses in there that say you can't do that without the builder's consent. So you better make sure that you can get the builder's consent or put a clause in the contract that allows you to do so without requiring the, or being required to jump through a lot of hoops by the building or a lot of fees, which is also a problem. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because I, I don't have much experience myself with pre-construction and um, I've heard from a number of people that have actually identified that this assignment clause, which a lot of people would try to use, 
in previous mm -hmm. version of, uh, has been pretty much removed and and for the most part has cleared up that opportunity for people to to buy the pre-construction and then just flip the paper and and uh, yeah which is exactly what a lot of people plan to do they plan to flip the paper to somebody else yes and that that's not necessarily doable unless the builder says it's okay yeah and if the builder says well it's not okay or give me twenty thousand dollars yeah to make it okay yeah yeah you got a bit of a problem now that's an interesting one why why would the um why would the lawyers put that in there to stop that process from happening? Well, I think a lot of times they don't want, if the builder has unsold units, they don't want the, bill, the, the buyers competing with the builder for the unsold units, right? Yeah. So um, it's a, a lot of times they don't want the image of the building to be such that a lot of people are trying to get out and sell their contracts to other people. So those are two reasons why not. Um, and uh, third of all, I think they want to control the process, right? They want to know because eventually they're going to have to have closing with somebody. Mm -hmm. So they they'd like to know who they're closing with. As <laughs> so a paper has been flipped a few times, and Joe Blow comes to closing and says, "Well, I'm the buyer now." Yeah, they really don't know what's going on, right? Right. So they they try to screen their buyers to make sure that they can get financing and they got some money that their credit's okay. And that the paper's not flipped a hundred times or however many times to somebody who maybe can't close, mm -hmm. right? So for all those reasons, they, they try to control that process. Right. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Now, it, it would seem to me that uh, in a pre-construction deal, even if you could get that to happen, um, you're, you're really, on, you're making, you're looking for the quick buck. You're trying to, well, when I say quick, meaning, however many years it takes a couple of years for that to finally get built or three years for that to finally get built. And you're just looking for that margin difference and away you go. Is there, is there any other strategy around pre-construction beyond that? Yeah, you got to be very careful with pre-construction too, because there are a lot of tax landmines as well. Um, okay. As you probably know, I'm sure you, you know, uh, but maybe some of your audiences know, um, people have not been declaring the, the income or the profit that they make in doing these flips. Yeah. So at least until recently, until CRA got preoccupied with other things, uh, they've been very, uh, shall we say, cognizant of this, and they're going after people uh, who have been flipping properties, whether they're flipping the paper or they're flipping houses to collect the tax. Mm -hmm. And people think that if you're, um, you know, if you're flipping this contract, that it's a capital gain. Right, uh, but in most cases, CRA considers that to be business income. Okay, so it's taxed at a very different rate than the capital gains tax at double the rate. So people think that oh, I'm only paying this much tax, and the CRA says no, 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 you're paying that much tax because this is really uh, a business. You've gone into a you know a trade of some kind. Right, right? this is this is a business venture, not an investment. Right. This is a situation where you sold it because you realized you weren't going to be able to close on the property. This is something that you've done repeatedly. Right. So this is a, this is a business venture for you. And yeah. this was your intention to sell. So they're going after you for the full tax. And they're also saying, why didn't you collect the HST, which you should have. So we want the 13% as well. So sometimes it's a tax nightmare. Right. You got to be very careful on those. 
Right. It, it sounds easy. You know, you pay your down payment, you sign a piece of paper, you go and do your thing for three or four years, and then you flip the paper and you make all this money. Yeah. Right. Easy peasy. Well, yeah. not so much. Yeah. Okay, guys, that's the end of the first part of the interview. There's a whole lot more still to come in part two, so I want you to join me over there. Now, before you do, please, if you could take a moment to just give us some feedback on the interview, on your thoughts, how you like it. We really appreciate it so much, and we really want to make sure that we continue to improve the product that we provide to you here at Leadership to Wealth. So, If you can do that, don't forget to like and follow, and we'll see you over in part two.